There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. This is Dev Raga and hope you had a really good Christmas long weekend. If you're listening to this episode, this is going to be airing just after Christmas and I'm going to take some time off coming up to the new year. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is do some reruns of the top episodes of 2023. And the top episodes of 2023 are basically when I did a series called Money in Your 20s, Money in Your 30s, Money in Your 40s and Beyond. And those episodes really resonated with listeners. So we're going to replay those over the next few weeks for you to have a listen to. If you haven't listened to them, I think it's a great chance for you to listen to it, particularly coming up to the end of the year and also in 2024. Now, just the other thing I wanted to let you know is in 2024, we're going to be rebranding this channel. We're going to go back to Devraga Personal Finance, the original name of the podcast. For those of you that have been following me since 2018 when I started, that was the original name. And then we rebranded to My Millennium Money Medical. And of course, we've now also rebranded since then to My Millennium Money Professional because the money concepts are exactly the same. No matter what profession you are, no matter what your income levels are, the concepts and the principles remain the same. And I'm a great advocate of talking about those concepts and principles. And as I've always said, that you can come back and listen to these episodes 50 years from now, and the concepts and principles are going to be the same, even though I may or may not exist. So I hope you had a really good Christmas break and hopefully you're going to have a really good New Year's break as well. So, and also think about, use this opportunity to think about what your goals are going to be for 2024. Think about how you're going to increase your income. Think about how you're going to reduce your expenses. We've had a pretty rough 2022, 2023 year in terms of interest rates rising and cost of living pressures and inflation, but that's short term. I don't want you to get distracted from the long-term goal. And I think 2024 overall for investing is going to be better, but who knows? No one really knows the true answer. I'm an optimist. I always think investing climate is always the best. So I've never changed my investing strategy in the last 10 to 15 years. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the next few weeks of the reruns of Money in Your 20s, 30s and 40s. And of course, as always, please stay safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this next four episodes, we will go through some basic steps or concepts you need to master based on your age when it comes to money. Now, this episode specifically will focus what to do with your money in your 20s. And just a reminder, these are just broad principles and concepts, and of course, won't apply to everyone. Life happens, and I understand that. And we need to be mindful of that as well. But the aim of this series, and I call this life series, is to provide a blueprint for your financial life in your own life. Having a blueprint or having some sort of GPS for your money is really important. Because when things don't go to plan, you have a fallback position. Now, these episodes are not intended to be prescriptive. 
but can act as a guideline. The other thing is, I know many doctors listening to these episodes are probably disadvantaged because you don't become a fully-fledged doctor most of the time until you're in your 30s or sometimes in your 40s because the training lag is quite significant. But that's not an excuse not to master some of these basics, which I'll be discussing in these episodes. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. So what should you do with your money in your 20s if you're listening to this episode? And I know that there are a lot of junior doctors and nurses and allied healthcare workers and just generally non-healthcare workers listening to these episodes. And I know there's a fair bit of medical students and nursing students also listening to these episodes. So when it comes to money in your 20s, I've broken it up into six main things that you need to sort out and try and master as much as you possibly can. Number one, get an education. Now, this is a controversial statement, and I don't mean it in any harm in saying this. When I say get an education, I'm not talking about university education or any diplomas. What I'm saying is you need to finish year 12, or at least try to, try your very best, whether it be academically or vocationally, and then you really need to think about what you want to do with your life. If you want to take a gap year with a focus on travelling, that's completely fine. But try and avoid procrastination. I know plenty of people can be quite critical of this particular step, but I strongly feel the more education you get, the more skills you acquire, for example, trade school, etc., the more likelihood you will end up making more money. Now, education is not a guaranteed way of success, but it's an opportunity which enhances your chances of survival and success when it comes to income generation. Remember, your income is the most powerful tool for wealth creation. Without an income, no matter how hard you try, you won't create wealth. Now, that income can be earned or unearned or via business or other means, but you must be able to generate a stable, successful income over the long term. And getting an education, by all accounts, enables you to do that. Now, within this concept of getting an education, let's look at some of the qualities that a sound education provides. It provides stability. Education provides stability. Once you learn something, you technically can't unlearn it. That's why it's incredibly powerful. No matter what you do or how hard they try, they can't take away your education or learn knowledge away from you. Now, reading is a great way to get educated about practically any topic. In fact, one of the reasons I started this podcast, apart from leaving a blueprint for my family and kids, is to encourage others to pay attention to their finances. Get educated, get empowered, and get entertained. That's been the three-step motto for this channel. Now, education means generally higher income and a greater sense of financial stability. Now, there are vast amounts of evidence which suggest a higher level of education, that is, the more educated you become, the opportunities to have a higher income level also becomes more. Here are the Australian statistics in terms of median income from the 2017 data. 
that's the most recent that I could find. If you have an education of year 11 and below, your median income is $47,318. Year 12, $53,829. If you have any certificates, $61,208. A diploma, $60,605. Now that's interesting that if you go from a certificate to a diploma, your income actually marginally drops. An undergraduate degree, $76,731. A master's degree, $84,072. And a doctorate, $102,977. This is just what the data shows. Does this mean that people who don't finish uni can't make more money? Of course not. Think about the famous people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. They're billionaires. They didn't finish university at their first attempt. But there's only one Bill Gates. There's only one Mark Zuckerberg. So the probability game is the probability of income success with education is higher. That doesn't mean it's 100% guaranteed. It's just a probability game. So the odds are in your favour, not against you, when you go out and seek an education. That can be formal qualification or informal education. Now, how does all this compare to when people retire? How likely are they to rely on the aged pension based on their education levels? If they've done just year 11, the chances of them relying on aged pension is around 87% probability. Year 12, 83%. Certificate, 87%. Interestingly, it goes up. Diploma comes down significantly to 77%. Undergraduate, 71%. Master's degree, 65%. And doctorate, 55%. So the disparity is not just in your 20s when it comes to education. It is reflected in your older age and during retirement also. Now, the other thing is education provides equity and equality. Education is a greatest equaliser. With education and skills, you get more empowered. And often education needs or leads to more education. It allows people to negotiate what they're worth. This then leads to people to earn higher incomes. And the chances are education leads to social mobility. It allows people to get out of the poverty cycle. The problem I'm finding is Even though Australia has a pretty good education system, it's nowhere near as equal as it should be. There is no way a child or person living in a lower socioeconomic area in Melbourne, just as an example, has the same level of education opportunities as someone who lives in a higher socioeconomic area. This is likely going to apply to your city that you're currently in. This also applies in the country, in rural areas across Australia. Therefore, this disparity still exists and it's absolutely vital we make it as equitable and as equal as possible. To ensure that every child or anyone who wants to get a good quality education is afforded one and there shouldn't be any barriers to attaining education. Now, I feel that education is a fundamental human right. Everyone should have access to it and it should be at the lowest cost possible and it should be of good quality education. The other thing about education is it provides safety, and that includes personal safety. A highly educated population often leads to greater societal safety. 
There has to be widespread evidence to suggest that education is inversely correlated to crime rates in societies. Let's look at the evidence. Higher education rates or higher graduation rates in all education levels leads to lower crime rates in that society. That's what the data shows. Areas with higher university enrolment rates have a lower crime rate. Areas which have access to better educational facilities often have a lower crime rate. And the lower the education level, the higher the risk and the higher the chances of incarceration and violent crime. Hence why removing barriers to achieving an education is really important. Now I'm probably just preaching to the choir, but what I want you to know and what I want you to do after listening to this component of this episode is if you have kids, if you know of any children, if you know of any friends or family that have kids, you need to let them know that. The stats are that attaining an education at whatever level you can attain is going to mean greater financial stability and most likely greater economic prosperity and also greater personal safety. So how's a low crime rate relevant to a financial podcast? Well, the way I look at it is for me to be a successful person in terms of my income and my wealth and my opportunities, I need to have opportunities to be successful financially. Now, part of that is safety. If I'm constantly living in fear about my safety, it has a psychological barrier to try out new opportunities, whether it be income generating or non-income generating or lifestyle influencing. This has a direct and indirect bearing on income levels, my economic opportunities, and with that has a direct bearing on my ability to save, invest, and earn more money and create wealth for myself and my family, ultimately leading to potentially poorer economic output if I'm not able to maximize that. That is, if I spend less money because I have less money, that's not good for the economy. Remember, the economy is a feedback loop. It relies on me spending money. And lastly, education leads to a better productive economy. Me getting an education which is useful for society means I can apply that knowledge to earn an income and try and improve society. That income is part of the economy. Part of that income is saved and invested, and the other parts are spent, and of course, some of the parts are paid in taxes. And those taxpayer funds help support infrastructure, health, education, the basic services that we all use and rely on communally. And any money that I spend drives economic growth. That economic growth means more jobs, more gross domestic product for the country, and more jobs means more demand, higher wages, better opportunities. There's a direct correlation with education levels, literacy rates with a better economy. And if you actually Google this, there's a great UNESCO report about this exact phenomenon. So in your 20s, or if you're in your teens listening to this, try and get an education, formal, informal, doesn't matter, and do your best. Number two, pay yourself first even if you have limited income. Now, I was talking to a medical student the other day and they're working part-time and they're telling me, what do they do with their low income? Well, you've got to pay yourself first. 
and you've got to have an aggressive savings plan. Of course, you've got to use some of that money to enjoy and live and pay expenses and all that sort of stuff. I'm not against that. But you need to get into the habit of taking a set percentage and pay yourself worst. Now, in your 20s, whatever income you have, you need to save as much of it as possible. Traditionally, I recommend people save 20% of after-tax income. This is on average for all ages at all stages of life, as a minimum. When you're younger, your opportunity to save more is likely higher. You should have less expenses. You hopefully don't have too many children eating up your food and wealth, literally. And this is more true in your early 20s, maybe not in your late 20s when you may want to start thinking about having a family or have a young family, if that's the way you want to go. We know that savings rate early in your life is far more powerful than investment returns. Now, I do acknowledge in 2022, the cost of living pressures is a huge burden. And it's not as easy as it was maybe just 10 years ago. And even then, it was quite hard. But this is what we have to work with. And hopefully, you can master the habit of saving early in your life. I talk to a lot of doctors, mainly doctors, who spend a considerable amount of time trying to get an education in their life which is great. But being a doctor means as soon as you graduate, you start earning an income. It's not as if you work for free for 15 years and to achieve fellowship. So if they don't master this step of paying themselves first early, they tend to struggle later in life because life literally happens. You tend to have competing interests like family, friends, kids, parents, uncles, aunts, birthdays, parties, weddings. Money just flows out as much as it flows in. That is, the returns on investing of 0% of your income is going to be zero. Let's dig a little deeper about this concept of savings rate. And I've done an episode on this in detail in episode 116 if you're interested. Saving money means you're forgoing current consumption in order to preserve future consumption. Within savings rate, you need to understand the sub-concept called marginal propensity to save. So what is marginal propensity to save? This is when you save a baseline income, say 20% of after-tax income, but suppose you get a pay rise, which healthcare workers often do get every year thanks to EBAs, which are statewide or private practices, which don't get it automatically, but they need to increase their fees, then how much of that extra income do you then save? Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is an intern who earns $80,000 per year, and after-tax pay in hand is around fifty-one fifty-eight. That is $5,158. She saves around 20% of that, which equates to $1,031 per month. Occasionally, she picks up extra shifts and gets paid additional days' work. Now, currently, this is an additional $1,000 per month in extra income. That's after tax. Her savings rate is 20%. Suppose with the extra $1,000 she now earns after doing some extra shifts, she saves all of that $1,000. Then a marginal propensity to save is 100% in addition to the 20% pay yourself money she's already saved. So what affects your ability to pay yourself first then? Number one, income stability. Number two, recessions. Number three, economic shocks such as the COVID pandemic. Number four is GDP of a nation. Interestingly, the higher the GDP, the more savings rate of its citizens. Number five, higher income. Higher savings rate, generally speaking, because less of a percentage of their income is actually spent on essentials and necessities. Number six is interest rates. If you have a high interest rate environment, that promotes more savings rate, 
when compared to lower interest rate environments. And this is called the substitution effect. It's actually happening right now. Number seven is government fiscal policy also affects savings rate. I found this interesting. It seems when the government spends more and increases their deficits, people tend to get worried and save more. And this is called the Ricadian equivalence. So the moral here is save as much as you possibly can in your 20s as your savings rate is far more important than your investment returns on the whole. Now refer to my example of Tom and Jerry in episode 116, which highlights this really well, or just stay tuned for this episode because I'm going to run a really good example later on. Number three, do not borrow any consumer debt. I'd like to think most of my listeners are pretty switched on. So there's a bit of a bias as the people who listen to my podcast are usually encouraged and are looking to enhance their financial life and are looking to improve their financial literacy and learning about principles and concepts. So I think this concept of never borrowing money to buy consumer goods is probably ingrained in your brains. But it's worthwhile reminding yourself of it every now and again. I've had high income earners such as doctors, nurses, lawyers, accountants, tradespeople, they contact me about their plan to use Afterpay, which, no matter which way you spin it, is a consumer debt product and it's rubbish. So what they want to do is they want to pay for a brand new TV, for example, in four equal payments, despite having the pay and the money to pay for it outright right now, because they're playing the inflation game. I don't think it's worth the effort. When I speak with multimillionaires, and there are several of them listening to this right now on this channel, I have never once had a person tell me they become a multimillionaire because they used afterpay or used consumer debt to their advantage. It hasn't happened even once. That tells a story on the process of avoiding consumer debt, and that tells a very important story. I can't stress this enough. Number four, have a systematic budget that works for you, provided you don't miss pay yourself money. Having a systems-based approach to medicine is really important. In fact, having a systems-based approach to anything in life is really important. Think about it this way. When you get into your car, you're likely subconsciously going through a checklist. Mirrors, seatbelts, wallet and personal belongings secured, seat position, heater, cooler, radio functions, turning the car on, reverse the gear, and then following the rules to get your destination safely and comfortably. It's something we all probably do every single day. This is no different when it comes to finances. I've done a detailed episode on budgets before in this episode's 218 called Budgeting Strategies, way back in episode 8 in 2018, if you're interested. Now let's look at why having a budget is really important early in your life. Number one, it's a planning guide. It helps you keep the eye on the prize. Number two is you're less likely to spend money you don't have. Number three is there's enough evidence to suggest people who budget tend to have more money during their retirement and lead a happier retirement life. Number four is if you have an emergency, it's factored in. I'll talk about emergency funds shortly. And number five is it highlights problems. Where is your money going? Where you spend your money, which is probably shouldn't be spending anyway. Now, you don't need to have a super accurate budget if you don't want to. I don't. In fact, I don't use tracking apps to capture every dollar that I spend. I kind of figured I don't really care if I spend three bucks here or six bucks there on a latte every day. That's not going to kill my investing or retirement or future plans. What's going to kill me if I don't pay myself first? That's going to absolutely kill my investments. So to having broad targets from a budget for me is really important. 
I use a simple 30-30-20-20 rule. That's the budgeting method I use. 30% mortgage and housing expenses, 30% living expenses, 20% pay yourself money, and 20% luxuries because I have a fully built emergency fund. And these percentages are based on after-tax income always. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll finish off the top six things you need to do in your 20s as part of this live series. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, welcome back. Number five, learn about financial concepts. Start investing and learn about these financial concepts. Number one, opportunity cost. This doesn't always have to be in money terms, but can also be in time and experience terms. Basically, it's what you have to give up to buy what you want in terms of goods or services. You technically can't spend the same dollar on two separate things. So you need to understand this early in life and make sure you think about it every single time money leaves your pocket. Number two, compounding. Now, all listeners will know this concept But what we probably don't appreciate as much is how asymmetrical the rewards are. To highlight this simple principle, here is an example of two people, Amy and Robert. They're twins, they're siblings. Amy and Robert both graduate the same year. Amy decides to delay her investing by 10 years, so starts investing at the age of 35. She's a pharmacist. Robert, on the other hand, is an engineer. Robert decides to start investing straight away. Both earn approximately $100,000 per annum, and both are able to save around $1,400 per month. Let's assume a conservative 7% per annum return, an expense ratio of about 0.2%. Where would Amy be at age 65? Well, she'd have $1.58 million in her retirement portfolio. Not bad. Where would Rob be at age 65? Well, Rob would have $3.29 million, almost twice as much, if not more. The 10 years Amy delayed has cost her $1.7 million. Now, that's what opportunity cost is. That's a pretty easy point to make. But let's make things interesting. Suppose Rob stops investing after the first 10 years and he doesn't put another dime into it. So he stops when Amy starts. But Amy continues to put money until the age of 65. 
would that situation change? Amy would have $1.58 million at age 65, as previously discussed, and Rob would have $1.71 million at age 65. So Rob ends up being ahead by $127,000 despite only investing for 10 years and not putting a single cent after age 35. Now, every single time that I explain this to people, particularly young people in their teens, it's like magic. The reason being, Rob has a greater investment time horizon and a greater runway, which means he has a greater length of time for his money to compound despite accounting for management fees. Now, what about taxes? We haven't accounted for taxes in this example, but really the end result is going to be similar. Rob is always going to be ahead of Amy purely because he started investing earlier. Now, the other thing is fees. Remember, fees compound too. Basically, think about it like this when it comes to fees. Suppose someone comes to you and says, give me all your money, you take all the risk, you put up all of your money. Now, if you make money, I take some of the profits and fees. If you don't make any money, I still take some of the money in fees. And here's the kicker. If you lose money, I'm so sorry about that. I'll still take some of your money in fees. Would you do that deal? We do these deals every single day of our lives in terms of our investments, superannuation, portfolio, etc., etc. So understanding the power of fees and how that can erode your investment over the long term is incredibly important. Now, suppose you have a fee structure of 0.15% and you compare that to someone who has a fee structure of 3%. Well, that person that pays 3% in fees could mean a 60% reduction in their overall investments over 40 years. Ignore fees at your peril and make sure you focus on them and ensure you understand them and know what you get in return for those fees. Here's another concept you need to know and master in your 20s, dollar cost averaging. Briefly, there are two types of DCA. If you have a lump sum, you can either invest it all or split it into equal parcels and invest it over a set period of time. This is the traditional definition of dollar cost averaging. But most people don't have lump sums to invest. So most people will just take a set percentage of their after-tax income, then invest that amount. That is also considered dollar cost average. Know the difference and utilize it. Now, personally, I'm a big fan of DCA because I don't have large swords of money lying around. So I just take a set percentage of my income and put it aside every single time. So I use the DCA version number two. The other thing you need to understand is productive assets versus non-productive assets. You got to know the difference between the two. A productive asset usually does two things. Number one, it has to rise in value over the long term. Number two, it's got to produce an income during that time because it's productive. A non-productive asset usually only does one or the other. It usually tries to rise in value over the long term, and sometimes it fails, which is why I don't like non-productive assets. Your home that you live in, for example, as much as people love it and consider it as a productive asset, it's not. It's barely an asset. It doesn't produce anything, it just sits there. And hopefully someone in the future will pay more for it compared to when you bought it. Now, that's completely fine. I'm not against people buying their own homes. Heck, I live in my own house and I love it. But don't confuse it with it being a productive asset. Home that you live in is not a productive asset. Here are some examples of productive assets. 
technology firms, agricultural firms, manufacturing firms, research firms, infrastructure firms, and examples of non-productive assets, precious metals like gold, cryptocurrencies, and homes that we live in. Warren Buffett has made it very clear. He prefers to own productive assets, either the entire business or a piece of the company. Now, the other concept you need to understand in your 20s is dividends. I think there are two things you need to understand when it comes to dividends. You need to understand how they work, what are they, and what are franking credits and frank dividends. This is pretty unique to Australia and just a few countries in the world that do it. Master it, know it, and exploit it. Now, whether it's fair or unfair, that's a different question, and we can talk about it all night long. But we have to work within the rules to exploit them to suit our needs. I've discussed dividends and franking, etc., in various episodes. Episode 102, Dividend Reinvestment Plans. Episode 65, Dividends versus Distributions. They're not the same thing. Episode 31, What is Dividend Investing? Episode 20, what are frank dividends? Now, to use an example, let's use Amy again. Amy has invested $10,000 into company ABC. That's 10,000 shares at a dollar per share. And that company ABC are in the manufacturing sector. Over the past 12 months, manufacturing sector has been in full swing. Supply has been short, demand has been high, which means prices have risen. The profits of company ABC are up. As a reward, the company pays dividends to its shareholders. Think about dividends as a reward to the shareholders for investing in the company. Here's how it works. At a certain date, company ABC will send a letter or an email to Amy to explain how much dividends they're paying per share. This is called declaration of the dividend. They will also publicly announce this information. We see this all the time in major companies in Australia. When you read in the news, CBA announces $1.80 per share as dividend. That's called a declaration. Then, they will then announce the ex-dividend date. Now, this is the date before you must have owned the shares in order to qualify for the dividend. On an ex-dividend date, the company's share price often falls by the same amount as the dividend declared. And this means that anyone buying the shares after the ex-dividend date doesn't pay the higher price because they don't get the dividend, so why should they pay it? Now, the payment date. This is the date the company pays the dividend. Usually, this is four to eight weeks after the ex-dividend date. Franking credits. This is where it gets a bit interesting. When a company makes a profit, it pays taxes. The dividends are paid out of the after-tax profits. So when a company pays dividends after tax is paid, it'll often attach a franking credit or imputation credit to that dividend to reflect the fact that the company has already paid tax on the dividend. We know the Australian company tax rates fluctuate between 25 and 30%. We know that marginal tax rates for individuals is much higher, up to 47%, including the Medicare levy. So it just means you're not double taxed. So when you submit your tax returns, you will declare the total dividend, including any imputation credits, so that you don't pay the 30% tax which the company has already paid. It just means if you're on a tax bracket lower than 30%, you'll get a tax refund. If you're on a higher tax bracket greater than 30%, you just pay the difference. And sometimes, rather than paying cash as a dividend, some companies retain the profits, but offer you more shares in the company for the same value as the dividends. 
So suppose in the previous example of Amy buying 10,000 shares in company ABC and suppose the dividend per share is 5 cents. It means the dividend should be $500 per year. Rather than doing this, they may offer $500 worth of extra shares for Amy. Now, given the money is not actually hitting a account, it means you don't need to pay income tax on it yet. That's the key word, yet. It just means that when you eventually sell the share portfolio, you will need to pay any capital gains on them, less any discounts. Depending on your tax structures and your tax bracket, it may work out better to receive shares as dividends rather than cash as dividends. Now, you need to discuss this concept specifically with your accountant. For more information on DRP or dividend reinvestment plans where you get shares instead of cash, it's called DSSP, which is, uh, I think it's called Dividend Share Substitution Plan. Now, I've done a specific episode on this in episode 118. If you're interested, I really get into the geeky aspects of all of this, including talking about cost base, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to go into it now, but I think it's an important concept of dividends and DRPs and DSSPs you need to understand in your 20s. Automation. You need to understand that as well. It seems easier said than done. What I mean by automation is basically setting up your finances such that almost all of it is automated as much as possible. When you get paid, a set percentage auto goes into your investments or savings account for a purpose. You don't need to do anything manually. The reason why this is so critical is because as you get older, more busier, life happens. It means you're more likely to miss things if you don't have automation and then forget to invest or save. If it's automated, it happens in the background and you're far less likely to miss it. And most of all, far less likely to forget to do it altogether. I speak to so many people have huge problem with procrastination when it comes to finances because life happens, especially in your 30s and 40s. So having a system set up in your 20s means it gets easier later in life. As you make more money, you just need to adjust the figures and the percentages, but the systems and automation keeps going on. Lastly, number six, build your emergency fund. Having an emergency fund is really critical. I recommend two separate emergency funds. Now, that's just me. It's basically what most people recommend. Um, you have an immediate fund, which is $1,000 and $2,000 for immediate emergencies like car repairs, home insurance excess, medical expenses, etc. Then you have the next emergency funds that needs to be about three to 12 months of either expenses or income. Now, I'm very conservative, so I prefer to have 12 months of income set aside. But in this climate of financial word, I do understand it's not for everyone because it takes a long time to build. So having a bare minimum of three months of expenses is completely fine if that floats your boat. And this money is never to be invested. It just sits in a bank account, high interest savings account, or maybe mortgage offset account. It doesn't matter, but it doesn't go into the market. It doesn't go into super. You don't take the money and invest it in property. You don't take the money and invest it in the stock market or buy ETFs or index funds. It just sits in a bank account or it just sits in an account that offsets your mortgage. Why is emergency funds so important? Here's why. A life emergency which happens early in your life can destroy your finances for the rest of your life if you're not prepared. That's a big statement, but it's true. A lot of people think emergency funds are only for people who have dependence of massive commitments. That's not true. I would argue it's far more valuable during your younger days than we were established. Because when you're established, even if you don't have much money or liquidity in terms of emergency funds sitting in the bank account, you likely have sellable assets which you can sell, even at a loss, to make ends meet. Any emergency early in life 
means you're less likely to be able to afford to fend it off by selling assets because you probably don't have much assets early in life. So you're far more vulnerable earlier in life. And that's why it's far more important to have emergency funds in your 20s and earlier in life than perhaps even later in life. Now, I've purposely not included personal insurance in your 20s because you may not have dependents, but you know it's not super critical. But if you do want to talk about it, if you do want to have it, that's completely fine as part of your emergency funds plan for it. I think personal insurance is cheaper when you're younger, when you're more fitter, more healthier compared to when you get older and likely develop some health issues. Believe me, I'm a doctor and healthcare workers are not immune to illnesses, catastrophic emergencies, or even premature death at a very young age. Illness and sickness affects everyone. Most importantly, fending off an emergency with an emergency fund during your younger days allows you to not rely on others. Now, there's nothing worse than having to rely on others' generosity when you're having a life emergency, whatever type it may be. Now, don't get me wrong, it's great to have friends or family to help out, but they have to fend for themselves too. So being less of a burden on them is a good thing for you and others. So having an emergency fund is absolutely critical. So those are the six main things that I think are really important to master early in life. Let's call it in your 20s. Now that's about it for this episode. In the next episode, I'll go into a bit more detail about some of the things you may want to focus on in your 30s. So stay tuned for that one. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a five-star rating on all platforms. That's even better. Please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. On that note, here's a review from Greg Stockbridge. Not sure if that's his real name, but that's what's been written in the review. And Greg writes, I'm a 44-year-old self-employed electrician and I've been following your podcast for a couple of years now. I really appreciate the user-friendly breakdown of complex financial topics. Your EV episodes inspired me to order a Model Y and I can't wait for its arrival. I'm a year or two away from having a six-figure passive income from my ETF portfolio and would love to hear an episode about how to best protect your income-generating portfolio when you pull the pin and retire. Thank you so much for all of your time and effort making this podcast and this channel. Greg, thanks for the wonderful review and congrats on the Model Y order. Now, I haven't ordered one. Uh, I drive a Tesla Model 3 because I haven't convinced my family enough in order to be able to buy the Model Y uh, because they have seen it. Um, They think it's just too small now that we have a dog, etc. But I'm sure you will enjoy it when it does come. Now, I'm recording this episode in September and every day I now see a Model Y in Melbourne every single day on my on my on my route not the same car like various people driving it it's out there it looks great um, and it's really really impressive in terms of its price and its range and its features so if you're thinking about a brand new car in that price range particularly a European model if you think about a Mercedes or a BMW Audi then I think you need to think about getting an EV. And that Mercedes can be, you know, an EV as well. They have a lot of EV options. Uh, Tesla have a lot of options. BMW now, I see a lot of iXs on the road, which is fantastic. I see a lot of Audi e-trons and a lot of EVs from Audi, which is fantastic. You know, when I first bought my EV in 2019, 
you know, you'd be lucky to see EVs on the road. Every day now, I see EVs. The Hyundai Ionic 5 is one of my favorite EVs on the road. The Hyundai Kona Electric, which is amazing. Of course, Tesla. Uh, Mercedes EQ series. Um, I see a fair bit of Mercedes EQ. I see a fair bit of BMW. I see a fair bit of Audi. Also, Mini Electric. I see them around. Also, see the, you know, older versions of EVs like Nissan Leaf. Uh, MG EV is out now. So there's so many options available. So um, once again, Greg, congratulations. And hopefully by the time you actually listen to this episode, um, you may have actually received your model wife. So congratulations. And uh, I really hope you enjoy the car, which I'm sure you will. Now, to answer your question about some of the things to protect your income generating portfolio when you pull the pin, when you retire, I've done an episode on deaccumulation phase in episode 125 asset allocation strategies and rebalancing in episode 80, the importance of asset allocation in episode 50, and asset protection episode 130. I hope you enjoy all these episodes. That's it for this episode. Thank you. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 